And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month as a New Year's resolution? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, weekend action. At Brighton, at-risk group get their shot in the arm, but will they get another one in time to keep them out of danger? Josie Spurs, meanwhile, barely have a shot at anything. How will they fare in their midweek clash with Chelsea? We round up all the news, salute Mo's goal of the season, season Salah, and hail transfer videos. On the day club accounts get more announced please requests than your local dealer, which were the greatest unveilings ever. All that plus Copper Libertadores and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, listener, Monday, February the 1st, you're in your pyjamas, and here on the Totally Football Show, it's Carl Anker. Ahoy, hoy. Daniel Story. Hi, James. And we're also joined by Charlie Eccleshare. Hello, Charlie. Hi, James. How are you doing? Um, very well, thank you. On a Sunday night, I should point out that for us, it's still Sunday night. We're fresh off the back of the landmark victory at the Amex Stadium between Brighton and Spurs. Boom. We're also... Still reeling from events a little bit earlier on at the London Stadium and possibly goal of the season, would you say, Charlie? I think it's right up there, yeah. I mean, I have this big thing with sort of how you measure great goals. And I think for me, one of them is sort of how few players could do it and how difficult they are to do. And I think both the assist from Shakiri is just, that's such a hard pass to play to get that angle and, and enough pace on it. And then the touch, how many players could take that touch and then finish almost in kind of double movement so I I would put it right up there um, I'm trying to think what others are, are in competition so this is Salah's second goal for Liverpool and it mm. comes from a West Ham corner and we'll get into the game a, a little bit later on but as you say uh, Trent Alexander's pretty massive pass and then Shakiri's extraordinary looping assist for Salah and the way he kills that and then with the other foot even before the rest of us have even registered what's going on has put it past uh, Fabianski is extraordinary Charlie asking what other options you'd have for a best goal of the season so far Daniel do you have any thoughts uh, the one that jumped out was a completely different type of goal but Eberechiezi's slalom for mm. Palace um, mm. I prefer a team goal, so I prefer the Liverpool one, I think. And there was some pretty questionable defending on that one, although there wasn't much defending at all for West Ham to do. It was a kind of Liverpool against themselves goal in that if they did everything right, there was nothing that could be done to stop it. But yeah, so I loved it. Loved it. Mm. Carl? Uh, Michael Cox once opined there are three types of great goal. There's the team goal. There's the uh, sort of 
one man dribble goal and then there's sort of you know the thunder bastard so the shot from long range so I'll, I'll give I'll give some flowers to Pierre-Emil Hoiberg's goal against Liverpool Ooh. earlier in yeah. the week purely because he doesn't do he's not supposed to do that the man yeah. was terrible shooting last season he should have scored four goals based on next year and then he just couldn't get on target so he's finally got one so I'll say yes that'll have my vote for now all right they could have done with a little bit of that this Sunday evening away at Brighton other nominees for goal of the season so far would include a couple from West Ham Sebastian Allaire's overhead kick a dynamic one too, and of course that Lanzini. I was just thinking, yeah, that one was. I remember mm. I had a great view of that in the Spurs press box, and that was oh, and right. the, the <laughs> circumstances of that as well. I mean, to to make it three all from three 0 that was, and that was in that that thunderbastard category for sure. Right, that was back in October, and I guess that's a subject we might come on to a little bit later on, Charlie. Worst Spurs performance under Jose Mourinho, because we've had a a fresh contender for that category. Today, I think, at uh, Brighton, or at least Sunday for you, listener, at Brighton. A, a quick check on the scores, though, before we go any further. Saturday, uh, we got our first shock of the weekend at Goodison Park as Newcastle got their first points of the year, 2-0 away at Everton. Crystal Palace, meantime, victorious at home to Wolves, who haven't won in 10 matches now, while Man City took their 12th straight victory, 1-0 over Sheffield United. West Brom and Fulham shared the points in a 2-2 draw, no goals between Arsenal and Man United, and Villa won 1-0 away at Saints. Sunday, it was 2-0 for Tuchel as Chelsea beat Burnley. Both goals from Spanish fullbacks. Leeds took a mighty 3-1 win at Leicester. Liverpool thumped the Hammers by the same scoreline, and Brighton won at home. So, let's begin there then. 1-0, a scoreline courtesy of Leandro Trossard. Richard Jolly pointing out that Brighton's last three Premier League home wins have now come in 2019-2020, and 2021. This potentially huge, no, in in the seven point margin that it opens up between them and the bottom three, and in potentially the damage for Spurs. But let's talk about the Seagulls first of all. They they were they were excellent. They were they were exactly as they've been for most of the season, which is that they were they were excellent through midfield, quick passing, interchanging players, moving into space. And then they get to the final third and it all kind of falls apart a little bit. And to an extent that 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 happened again. I mean, Aaron Connolly's missed chance at the end. I mean, how whether he didn't know Alderweireld was going to slide or whether he didn't know he was there, it was a remarkable miss. And um, they finished one of their chances, but they they could have been two or three nil up. They really could. Um, uh, Potter will see it as as justification for the way he plays, and and all credit to him because I think they are a credit to Premier League bottom half sides. They genuinely try and do things a little bit differently. Uh, and hopefully he'll get a striker, if not in the next couple of days, which sounds unlikely, then at least in the summer. Because if they had a, a Callum Wilson or even a you know a Mikel Antonio, they would be they would be top ten, I think. Is there is there anything in the works in terms of a potential arrival there as centre forward? No, I think I think they got Percy Tau finally in after his extended loan and work permit issues, uh, and I think that's probably about it. They've obviously got Danny Welbeck. They've got they've got a few strikers, but just I think I said it on this show maybe last week. They just you put them all together, and there's one really good striker there, but separately hmm. they're just not quite there. But I mean, D- Danny Welbeck's kind of like the worst addition for a team that plays good football, has some nice approach play, but can't really finish. Um, so it feels like trying to corner that market. <laughs> but like, I, I agree with Daniel. Like they, they, um, it, it wasn't like a, you know, this is uh, so different from previous games. I think it was, um, it was very familiar, I guess, just a lot of them, they, they were made to pay for those missed chances and, and today they weren't. Hmm. How familiar was it from a Spurs point of view, Charlie? You watched them a lot. <laughs> 
achingly, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you were saying before about worst performance in the Mourinho era. I'd say the the post-lockdown draw at Bournemouth, nil-nil, and the 3-1 defeat at Sheffield United, um, both in July of last year, uh, probably edge uh, this evening. But... Yeah, it was it was pretty bad, and and I think the worst thing, or one of the worst things, will be that it it will come as a surprise to very few regular Tottenham watchers. Um, you know, without Kane, this often happens. Um, and you know, the, the second half against Liverpool really, you know, was a pretty bad portent for what was to come. I mean, they went on this they they went on a run from Hoybier's shot a goal that Carl referenced in the 49th minute of the Liverpool game to the 30th minute of this game without having a shot, not a single shot. Um which is about 70 minutes and that kind of summarizes where they are a bit. Um and I mean you look at they they brought in they played three out and out center backs today in a back three which is quite rare. You know normally when teams play with a back three one of the center backs is a kind of defensively minded fullback uh, and then just completely tossed that out at half time and brought on a, a centre forward which you know it, it didn't really speak to a team that knew what they were doing particularly it felt pretty speculative and hopeful um, and it's a it's a concern because Kane we hope it's not as serious as some of his injuries before but he is going to miss a few games and they're playing so many games and you think Chelsea on Thursday could, could get ugly Kane's absence is one thing, and I, I, I kind of had this notion that they'd done all right last season in the period that he was out. But even if they're not finishing off chances, that doesn't explain entirely why they were unable to construct anything. Well, so much of it does go through Kane. I mean, he, he plays in this more withdrawn role now, and they've had issues with moving the ball up the pitch when Kane's been shackled. So I think it was a worry. Like They, they went on that really good run where they went to the top, but then teams got a bit wise to the fact that basically their ways to move the ball up the pitch are through Ndombele to Kane. And if you stop those two avenues, they really do look short of ideas. And they've had a few games, Leicester City at home, second half, Liverpool the other night and then tonight, where they throw on loads of attacking players. But as you say, they've got no one to really link it if Kane's either not playing or being shackled. Um, and that and that is part of the issue. You know, under Pochettino, when Kane was out, they found ways to you know, maybe replace his goal threat with Son, but they don't really have another player in the squad unless they want to move Ndombele further forward. But then you lose a lot because I think he's more effective playing deeper as an eight. So it's it's a conundrum. And I mean, they, they did okay last season without Kane, but they also had some pretty ropey performances in that time. Obviously then Son got injured as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, finding a way to kind of create chances without him there is 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 the big challenge, let alone score those chances. Mm. Can I ask a quick question about Brighton? Who impressed you most about Graham Potter's side? Uh, I think Pascal Gross is is a really tidy technical footballer. He's he's kind of one of those players who Spurs probably miss in that there are very few bells and whistles and not much pace either. But he's a pretty technical, tidy player. But that kind of goes for everyone in the squad. They have these kind of mountainous centre-backs um, who have been taught by Graham Potter to be more comfortable on the ball, to his great credit. And then everyone else, it, it, it kind of, it feels like they could all pretty much play in each other's position. I mean, Yves Basuma is by far their most important player. It should be said. He he is, Potter was asked last week about his levels and he said, well, he's Champions League level some weeks, but the challenge is to reach the consistency, which means he won't be here anymore. He will be at that yeah. level. But he, He's had a few injuries and I think he is, I mean, I think he's good enough to step up now. I think he, for a team, let's say like an Arsenal or, you know. Or even a Tottenham. Even, 
Yeah, even a Tottenham or even, you know, even even Manchester City, someone like that to play that kind of I think he's better been better than than Rodri since Rodri arrived in the Premier League. I really do. He's a he's a kind of combative central midfielder, but he's he's good at passing as well. He's he reminds me a little bit of Wilfred Ndidi at Leicester in that he seems to do everything at a kind of 8 out of 10 level. It's just that unlike Ndidi, he doesn't do it every week at that level, but yeah, he's the most important player. It's something very frightening about the way I mean, the more you describe him, the more you realise why Liverpool seem okay with uh, Genie Wijnaldum departing. It's one of those, oh, that's what they're planning to do. Uh, moves. He's a real credit. Uh, again, this this Brighton side, uh, their strikers are all kind of similar. The defence has some deficiencies, but their midfield is really good. It's that old analogy that used to describe some international teams where, you know, in the middle third, they're amazing. And in the other two thirds, they can't really do things. Brighton are, they, they, they've got all the very nice things the number people like, uh, I think they're actually. I think last week when I when I ran the numbers, they're actually basically they should have scored eight more goals, which again spoke to how how they're they're not great goal scorers, and the fact it's taken them so long to to win at home speaks basically to the tiny margins that it couldn't get. I think Brighton will be okay, but there are a number of teams in the bottom half that are maybe one proper goal scorer away from being Europa League quality, and I think this league is so oddly, uh, it's like a very weird corset for some of these teams you just get caught in the squeeze mm. well pretty <laughs> pretty tight between uh, Spurs and uh, Chelsea right now 6th and 7th and of course it is Chelsea who Spurs will visit midweek the two teams level on points Spurs with a game in hand Chelsea earlier on on Sunday uh, notching up their first win under their new manager Thomas Tuchel with a 2-0 victory over Burnley who had a, a sort of Spurs-esque number of, of shots in the game and their first one came in the 94th minute. Not sure how many passes Chelsea uh, made this time, but aside from that, any further conclusions that we can draw now after, what is it, five days of Thomas Tuchel's reign? I, I think he, he's pretty quickly established that there's going to be a, a meritocracy there, which is that you know Frank Lampard probably had his, his favourites, his players that he relied upon, and, and all credit to them because they played well and got there on merit. You know, if you'd have told Chelsea fans three weeks ago that in, in three weeks' time you'll be playing a, a wing-back combination of Marcus Alonso and Callum Hudson-Odoi, um, <laughs> they'd have wondered who on earth had come in for Frank Lampard or whether he'd had some sort of meltdown. But um, Antonio Conte. It, it, yeah, it, 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 it works. <laughs> you, you look at the component parts and they work. You know, Hudson-Odoi wants to attack. Marcus Alonso is more of a defensive wing-back, but is, is really good at those underlapping runs that he did for the goals. And... You know, they signed a fifty million pound fullback in Ben Chilwell in the summer, and if they're going to play that formation, to my mind, he just doesn't get in it because he he's good at what he does, Chilwell, but he's not an overlapping, underlapping wing back. He 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 goes forward, he turns back, he plays the ball into midfield, and they shuttle it round to the other side. I kind of feel like I'm in danger of going overboard on Tuchel because I thought the reaction to his appointment was really harsh on him. You know, it wasn't his fault that Frank Lampard got sacked, and I think that got a little bit lost, but. They have played two teams who barely tried to attack and that Spurs game is going to be really interesting to see how he kind of tries to dismantle a a team that's in a bit of a rut. I do think it is interesting. I mean, I slightly flippantly said Antonio Conte, but it did feel like a bit of a throwback to that, you know, playing with the wing-backs and obviously Alonso was a key part of that system. Aspilicueta excelled as that right-sided centre-back. And obviously in that system, you had Victor Moses who kind of came from nowhere and, and you know, had that brilliant season. And obviously Hudson-Odoi has um, a far higher reputation, but that looks like a really um, potentially exciting position for him. And I know I speak to people who, who rave about Hudson-Odoi. I mean, they really do think he could be 
a huge success there. Um, obviously, he's you know had the Bayern Munich links and, and all of that, but that's potentially you know you, it's always interesting when you get a new manager who's going to be the one or two players who they really like the look of and you know put in a new position. And he looks like being a big uh, a big beneficiary, and that system does seem to be working well, albeit you know as as Daniel says in a you know small sample size and against uh, not two of the league's best teams. The the other thing that's that, that I think is interesting is that he 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 openly says he's studied Pep Guardiola quite a lot, um, and the way he keeps five players at least, or pretty much the, the same five players behind the ball when Chelsea go forward is is a huge difference from Lampard, who had this thing where when Chelsea was struggling to break down defenses, they just kind of threw an extra player on and then another player forward and then another mm, player forward mm. just to try and overload. Whereas he always keeps those three centre-backs and the two behind the ball when Chelsea are just in normal possession. But when they counter-attacks, you saw Aspilicueta, he clearly knew what he was meant to do, which was sprint forward 70 yards to get into the penalty area. So there's clearly some understanding that's already got through to the players. And let's face it, he's probably only had two training days because he had one day and then a game and then a day off and then your match preparation again. So that's pretty promising. Again, per Richard Jolly, uh, Aspilicueta has only scored nine Premier League goals, but they've come for six different Chelsea managers, which either speaks to the longevity of his career or changes at that club. Equally, Marcus Alonso, until Salah uh, whapped in Liverpool's second, probably was in with a shout for goal of the weekend, though, with with his strike. That was pretty phenomenal stuff. Nice to see him back in the side, unless you're you Ben Chilwell. But uh, as I think Daniel was was hinting, it's, it's not this kind of team that was the problem under Lampard. It's the bigger sides, which Spurs, for all of Sunday's defeat, probably still count as. So, Charlie, what what's the plan, do you think, for, well, Chelsea, but also for Spurs? How do, with a couple of days of, of training ahead of Thursday, how does Mourinho sort things out? Apart from Chris Wilder, Sheffield United, the last two teams they beat were Bielsa's Leeds and Arteta's Arsenal. And Arteta's Arsenal weirdly kind of went at them. It was a bit kind of frenzied. They were going through an awful run and they they looked like they didn't really know what they were doing. And obviously Bielsa's Leeds do what they do and they went after Spurs. And, and that on both occasions, that really suited Tottenham. So it, I'd, I'd also be very surprised if... Um, Tuchel's Chelsea were kind of cavalier in the way they approached the game because I think that will, to a degree, although Kane's not there, still play into Spurs' hands. So it might be a bit cat and mouse, certainly to start with. Um, and Tuchel will hope that his far superior options off the bench would uh, potentially turn the game in the second half. I think one of the big things for Chelsea and for Thomas Tuchel is just making sure they're better out of possession. On the Lampard, Chelsea got in really, really naive. Um, I think... There was a over-reliance on N'Golo Kante to be something closer to his 2016 variation. He just didn't look like he had the legs for it anymore. Uh, and you could see the importance of Mount because he was the only midfielder really out of possession that was doing things. Whereas you will expect a manager as meticulous as Thomas Tuchel to tell Chelsea's players, when you are out of possession, stand here and here, run this way and run that way. Is, um, is there a player still in Gareth Bale, do we think? No. I don't. Think I mean, be, I don't think he can beat a player over over yeah. ten yards anymore. Gareth Gareth Bale is a really interesting. So Gareth Bale was probably the last Premier League superstar to leave uh, before we all figured out what XG was and get our spreadsheets out. So we don't really have great amount of data as to what he was as a player when he left, and now he's come back. It's that very interesting thing of watching like a a fun maverick lose a little bit of themselves. Gareth Bale in 2011 to 2013 was probably the most pace and power football player you would see without having the words pace and power used to describe them because 
reasons. Um, and I don't think Gareth Bale has the technical ability to make up for the loss of physical strength. I can't really see him dribbling past defenders by blowing past them in the first five yards. And when you can't do that, you can still strike a ball quite well, but he's not getting on the ball in the way he used to. And that's about it. Yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing because I thought it, it. I thought it might work out, although he's not played much football recently, and he must have been pretty low on confidence. Whatever the kind of PR spin on his his time at Real was towards the end, but going back to Tottenham's end up being the worst thing because everyone can remember his 2011 and 2012 self. And even though every Spurs supporter knew they weren't getting that, they must have kind of, even subconsciously, kind of emotionally bought into this idea of returning hero. And if you forget he was there, they were signing a player that hadn't played for Real Madrid for two years. That's what they were doing. They weren't signing the Gareth Bale from, from Tottenham's time. But it's impossible not to kind of emotionally buy into that. And that's to, you know, that's created, I think, expectations that he was probably never going to meet albeit he's still falling pretty far short of even the lowest expectations yeah I think there's so many interesting strands to this I mean when that deal was done all the information we had was that it was very much a Daniel Levy deal I mean Mourinho was happy for it to be done but it was kind of a bonus it wasn't one of the areas he necessarily uh, felt he needed strengthening in the squad and when he was signed Mourinho's message internally was very much I'm still getting a striker right like this isn't and it was like yeah yeah yeah. this is just a great bonus and you know Daniel Levy had wanted to bring Bale back pretty much since the moment he left and you wonder now is it a bit of a kind of vanity project and, and what Carl touches on is is kind of the crux of it I mean he 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 can't now burn past players there are some people who watch him who think he looks like he doesn't quite trust his body which would make sense given the muscular injuries that he suffered with. And, and, and as yeah, as Daniel says, I think most Spurs fans deep down knew that. We weren't going to be getting 2013 Bale where he just runs past people and smashes into the top corner. But I think people thought, yeah, but this guy has won numerous Champions Leagues. He's scored in Champions League finals. He'll still be technically good enough to have these moments of magic. And, may, and maybe they still will come. We've seen one or two glimpses. But yeah, you strip it away and it... it doesn't really look great and it does look like a slightly strange signing and it's interesting I was doing a kind of review of the year thing back in December and was kind of one of the categories was moment of the year or something like that for Spurs and I was reliving the excitement of the signing and it's actually kind of hard to when you watch performances like today and and you know you take away all the romance and you are just watching someone who looks a bit like a kind of late era Torres, Rooney, Owen you know those guys who was exploded so young and then have just played so much football and just look a, like their legs have gone a bit and, and the disconnect between what you're seeing and then you think back to the days of frenzied excitement as they welcomed back the hero who with Kane and Son was going to be the greatest strike force in the history of humanity like it, genuinely like the, the it was like they are going to be you know, the next Messi, Neymar and Suarez. Um, and it, yeah, it hasn't worked out. Maybe it still will, but he's not. You know, Bergvine was signed last January and he's been the foil to Kane and Son. It kind of tells you what Mourinho wants from that third attacker. Bergvine puts in a great shift every game. He's so energetic. He hasn't scored this season, uh, which obviously is an issue, but, you know, he provides legs, essentially. And that's a long way from Bale's game now, which is the odd moment if you're lucky. Mm. Well, huge game coming up on Thursday then at Stamford Bridge. Loads more to discuss in this totally. Next up, let's tackle West Ham Liverpool. Now, sir, remember a tattoo is permanent, so tell me one more time what you want. 
Uh, well, I want Bruno Fernandes knocking a liver bird off its perch with a free kick, with Ollie as a kind of, like, god in the sky. Oh, and Champions 2021 on top as well. I can't see anything going wrong there, Man United fan. But if things don't go exactly as expected, Paddy Power's Acker Insurance gets you a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus-fold Acker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive, excludes shop bets, excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply, 18plus, begamalaware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. 3-1 win for Liverpool last Thursday at Spurs. Another 3-1 win for Liverpool at the London Stadium late Sunday afternoon. Liverpool having fun again. Yeah, just about. Um, I think a lot of it's coming down to Jordan Henderson. I prefer him to play in midfield because I thought uh, Henderson in midfield can shield one of the younger players in centre-back. But Jordan Henderson as a centre-back has done what Jordan Henderson often does, which is uh, make football journalists seem silly now. (laughs) He is really growing into that centre-back role uh, and is adding a degree of solidity that I didn't think previously possible. I think perhaps it's just very good X's and O's in his positioning or it's the softer intangibles from Jordan Henderson. I mean, Henderson's a very gobby football player, but maybe he's, whatever he's doing, it's allowing Trent Alexander-Arnold to feel at ease about going forward a lot more. And when Trent Alexander-Arnold is able to go forward a lot more, he's not having to hit, try and hit those crosses from such a deeper area so the angles aren't as acute. And then when Trent starts really, really going, it causes that knock-on effect because then teams have to be worried about how the fullbacks are attacking, which then opens up more space in interior areas, which means Mohamed Salah can attack more down those angles, which is what you saw against West Ham. And it's that thing of all Liverpool need is just one or two more players to be fully fit in key positions so they can go back to being full strength Liverpool and I think at the moment one you know to the credit of uh, Jordan Henderson for making something happen at centre-back well six goals in two games after a long period when they couldn't get any whatsoever uh, Mo Salah bagging the first two on Sunday evening can we talk a little bit about perhaps the key player in all of this who, who actually wasn't any of those names but a uh, Curtis Jones who's arrival into the match in, on, on the 57th minute first of all spark that lovely little vignette between James Milner mm. who was being taken off but also then <laughs> set up the uh, set up the opening goal for Mo yeah I, I actually think I actually think that the, the rest of the Premier League is probably quite annoyed at Tottenham and West Ham because they Liverpool recently have started games kind of slowly passing and that's clearly to protect their central defence. And, and that causes a massive problem because uh, Gary Neville kind of half mentioned it on commentary. But if you pass really slowly and the fullbacks push forward, by the time one of those fullbacks gets the ball, they're getting the ball to feet with a man in front of them rather than pass, pass quickly. And they're getting the ball on the run and whipping the cross into the box. And I, I think Liverpool have kind of got spooked by that. So they've played a little bit slower. I think that's far more of a reason than, than the fact that Thiago has been in the team. Um in the last two games, they, they've approached a game and they started like that and they've realised that the opponent is not really trying to attack. So actually, we can play like we normally do. And Liverpool seem to do that. I, I don't know if it's coincidental when it, it came on, it came when Jones came on, but he's a different type of player to Milner, of course he is. But I, I think if Liverpool had won their six games in a row previous to that rather than struggled, then Jones would have started over Milner and Liverpool would have looked like that from the start. I think they've been playing this kind of risk-averse football because they've lost a few games and they've lost a few centre-backs. So I, I think 
West Ham and Spurs allowed them to play like that. And I think that's pretty daunting now because I don't, you know, I think I think Liverpool will play that way from the start in their next few games because mm. they're clearly better at doing it. Well, this that you know, give, being given a shot in the arm by Spurs, Liverpool and Brighton plays into this Doctor Tottenham narrative that fatalistic <laughs> Spurs fans have. That you know, you've got you've got an issue. Doctor Tottenham will see you now. Also, seeing the doctor at the moment as well <laughs> as half of Liverpool's defence is also Sadio Mane. Although there is this theory that it's his absence that really sparks Mo Salah into life these days. I don't know if this is because of that story about the pair of them not going on, but it's intriguing that. Salah's best two performances of late, the FA Cup against Man United and this one here, both came without his forward partner on the field. I'm getting some very dubious looks from you. No, he's, he scored, I think he's got scored 20 and assisted nine goals in his last 20 games in which Mane hasn't started. So it stands Ooh. up to kind of long-term scrutiny. You'd kind of think the opposite. You'd think if you've got defenders with two of them to look after, um, but maybe it's a kind of responsibility thing, you know, spin it as a positive. He steps up in the absence of another player. But yes, you're right. Those rumours do exist, James. I, I also was just talking about players who impressed us and you know, youngsters like Curtis Jones. I mean, Nat Phillips was outstanding, I thought. And I only found out today that he's the son of Jimmy Phillips. Did everyone else know that? Yeah. I mean, Daniel, Daniel, you must you must know that. And Premier League, Premier League years legend, Jimmy Phillips. Yeah, I only spotted him on commentary. He's, was he at Bolton? Is that him? Yeah, I think if it, I yeah. think there's a Premier League years where he scores a, a blinder for Bolton deep in the weeds. Mm. But yeah, I thought he was excellent. Looked so composed. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, given they and I know we criticise Spurs' attack, but they, you know, he and Henderson didn't give them a sniff in that game. And West Ham had a couple of chances today, but I thought he, yeah, he was really impressive and in not the easiest circumstances. So there's talk that Liverpool are looking to bring in a little bit more. Uh, strength at the back in the shape of Preston North End centre-back Ben Davis by Monday, whenever the deadline is, Monday evening. Uh, in the meantime, two big games coming up for them. First of all, they take on Brighton fresh from their victory of Spurs and then they host Man City. City who are four points ahead of them. City who have a game in hand on Liverpool, making this clash at Anfield next Sunday, well, pretty huge for Liverpool's title hopes. How much chance do you give them of shutting down Pep Guardiola's 12 wins in a row, Man City machine. I want to give him a fair shot. I think Pep Guardiola, there is something very ominous about this Manchester City team. They are coming into year in just the right time. That Diaz-Stones partnership looks really good, even though that didn't play against Sheffield United. And then similarly, even though Gundogan didn't really have the weekend that many expected, Gundogan is getting us close to his pre-ACL Dortmund days when he was one of the best box-to-box midfielders in the world. However, I think there is something about the way, again, it's the whole thing about Pep Guardiola tends to overthink big matches. That makes me think it's not going to be the uh, formality that, that some people might think. I think there is something about the way Klopp and Pep Guardiola interact with each other. And there's something about the way those two men research and come up with patterns that makes me think that game will be a, a bit cager than... It, the form book probably indicates. I think that mm. it's well within Liverpool's grasp to get something. Zinchenko up top as a false nine or some <laughs> some some zany alternative. I, I I do wonder as well with City, and it's maybe a bit facile, but they this winning run they're on, 
they have had a pretty soft fixture list in that time. So it will be interesting to see how much the upturn in form. And as Carl says, I mean, Guardiola is so good at kind of surgically putting away the weaker teams. It's sometimes those bigger games where he gets looks a bit kind of frazzled. So I, I, I will be interested to see that. And especially without De Bruyne, Liverpool coming, coming back into form at just the right time. I mean, we really... Because for, for all this season being the you know, the weirdest, most exciting season ever. If Brighton, if they're seven points clear of Fulham and if City do win that Liverpool game, then suddenly it looks like the title race and relegation battle aren't quite as exciting as we hoped. So I think all the neutrals would would like Liverpool to win that game um, to keep things interesting. And yeah, I, I it's, it's also been the kind of season, hasn't it? I mean, when Liverpool beat Palace 7-0, I remember there was lots of, well, you know, Liverpool have clicked into gear. It's basically game over, given the title now. And then they went on that awful run. So no one's really been able to sustain. I mean, City have done the closest to that in the run they're on now. But it's been so up and down. It wouldn't surprise me if they do lose to Liverpool and then all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, well, maybe maybe City have been found out now and, and it is Liverpool's title. So I maybe I'm kind of saying that because I, I want it to remain interesting. But yeah, it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if, 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 if Liverpool do get the win there. All right, well, that's the subject for Thursday's preview show, City this weekend, uh, 1-0 winners over Sheffield United with a goal from Gabriel Jesus. Uh, in a second or two, let's uh, round up the rest of the weekend's results and then start a little look forward to the other midweek fixtures. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Sunday afternoon, Leeds 3-1 winners. We're at the King Power Stadium. That's now back-to-back wins for Marcelo Bielsa's side after losing their first three games of the year. They're very much like the proverbial box of chocolates, Leeds. Uh, it's always, you know, nice to see what's in there, but you don't know what it's going to be, etc. <laughs> and so on. we all know the the paradigm. But a win against a big side like Leicester does feel significant. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think so. And from behind as well, um, that was significant, their instant response. I thought, you know, Gareth Southgate went to watch this game we can assume to watch James Madison and Harvey Barnes and maybe even James Justin, but Patrick Bamford was sensational. He really was. You know, we probably because he didn't play many games in the Premier League before, he kind of became a sort of lone striker figure in that he waited for service. But under Bielsa, he seems to have learnt the kind of timing of his runs and the link-up play. And he was, he was, it was a complete performance. A goal, two assists, a beautiful through ball for the first and then the selflessness for the third. Um, and he's, you know, he's, there's only Harry Kane who's got more goals than him, English in the Premier League this season. So Southgate must have been mightily impressed. I know he's probably behind Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Danny Ings at the moment, but he keeps scoring. I mean, he he's only ever scored 17 in a league season before, and obviously that was in the Championship, and that was a long time ago. He got 16 last season. He's on 11 already in the Premier League, which is remarkable, really. I mean, fair play to him. Al at Alan C80 says, can you comment on Patrick Bamford having relatively straightforward hair in a team with no less than three top knots? Very studious. Looking. I was literally just about to say that. I was going to say he, <laughs> he, 
he, <laughs> he must be the only like English player in that team without a top knot. And mm. I wonder if he fits in. And I wonder if that's the most top knots ever. I don't know how far back the <laughs> to data goes on that. But can there have ever been more top knots in a Premier League team than Leeds? I, I don't think so. As I say, it's a very sensible Nottingham High School haircut, James. Right. If you remember. Yeah, well, he studied at Nottingham High School alongside your brother, Daniel. Is that right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. and me, but was... I was I just left. Okay, but was he a playground legend already? Was he the kind of kid that other all everyone else talked about as being that whiz kid who could do whatever he wanted, etc.? Yeah, I'd left a couple of years earlier, so yeah, there was a space to fill. He he was so good at football, but we were a we. It's a rugby school, and you can't play football until sixth form. So he left before then oh. because to pursue a football career with with Forest, he was on the youth in the Forest Youth Academy at that point. But yes, he, in the playground, I understand he was something else. Mm. All right. What about Leicester then? Uh, is it too simple to put this down to the, the absence of one James Vardy? Well, he hasn't scored a ton kind of, of non-penalty goals, has he? And, and I think he's struggled at home. So, uh, maybe, although maybe he, I'm sure he's contributing in lots of other ways, it, it definitely doesn't help. I mean, they, ha- they have just—they have struggled at home, like many teams this season. They look like they are a bit better uh, away and when teams come onto them a little bit more. Um, There's also no Ndidi in the game as well, which is yeah, big. that's true. Um, that's true. Brendan Rodgers is very good at adapting other styles that managers do and, and doing his sort of bootleg version. And I think when Leicester at their best, they do a very very good bootleg version of Manchester City, where they sort of have four four to five players encamped in other teams' half, where they have the stopper. So rather than Fernandinho for City, it tends to be Ndidi for Leicester City, and then there's all these free eights and fun. And then similarly, when City don't have Fernandinho and don't have Sergio Aguero, they look down a notch. So when Leicester City don't have Jamie Vardy and Ndidi, they just look a bit more orthodox. Um, I still have them finishing the top four. I think there's just enough about them that they will squeeze out um, Tottenham Hotspur. There is something about the way Brendan Rodgers coaches that I have faith in that he will figure out the solution to this before other teams make their I just wonder with that, though, how much of a trauma there is from last season, that given the way they fell apart in the second half, whether some you know, unconsciously you're thinking you're kind of waiting for that to happen. I hope I hope it doesn't, because I think I think it was a shame they didn't get top four last season. And I love the way they play. And I'm, I'm a big Brendan Rodgers fan. I know uh, a lot of people aren't. But um, yeah, but but I do just wonder if, you know, that you start to believe oh, we're going to run out of legs again like we did last season. Brennan Rodgers strikes me as a manager who, once that happens once, he will try and at least look into how to stop that again. And this Leicester side, historically under Rodgers, has been very, very good with shooting from long range. So uh, they have numerous players that can just get a ball and go, having this, having a go. Um, uh, So I think that's the sort of thing that tends to trim down when they're not in those moments of overconfidence. So the long, you know, the 35 yarders don't go top bins anymore. They go wide. And then it falls onto Rodgers to basically teaches players don't stop having those shots start looking for other players hmm. and laying off and Rogers Brendan Rogers is highly respected among his peer group and managers and highly respected among loads of players but because he did that being Liverpool documentary it can be very very easy to think of him as some sort of David Brent figure he's a genuinely smart coach he's really really inventive and he doesn't really strike me as someone who needs to learn twice how to fix when your team is falling off so I think there's going to be enough to this Leicester side as for Leeds their supporters pointing out that when Rafinha and Rodrigo uh, went off, they effectively were winning this match with the same team they had in the championship, which is pretty impressive stuff from there equally. 
uh, respected manager. Uh, Midweek, it's going to be Leicester at Fulham, while Leeds host Everton, who on Saturday... Uh, went down 2-0 at home to a Newcastle side who hadn't won in 11, who hadn't even picked up a point so far this calendar year. Uh, Watching a Newcastle team playing on the front foot, uh, taking the game to their host, supporters wondering where on earth that performance came from, had one very visible potential answer right in front of them on the sideline in the shape of, of the freshly arrived coach, Graham Jones. Daniel? How much should be put down to him and how much is it just coincidence that he's turned up and was urging the players on and suddenly they perform really well? I I, kind of think it's option C, which is that it doesn't really matter in that I know there's a big going to be a big thing made of it because he's only appointed in the last few days and they were they were good in the second half against Leeds and they were they were brilliant against Everton. But um, coaches and, you know, management of a football a club if it's well run should be done as a team you know you should have someone that specializes i'm going to set the team up this way or and i'm going to and i'm going to give the team talk as well and i'm going to get them up for the game uh, and i'm maybe going to do my press duties but graham jones clearly is the is the kind of hands-on micromanager when the game's on and if if newcastle feel that they can do that and bruce feels that Jones is better at that than him or maybe a, a fresh take after the, the horrible run is better for this game then so be it and I, it clearly worked I mean they 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 did press higher up the pitch they really did and there's this kind of theory that we'll, we'll protect our own goal by staying deep and actually A. Carl Darlow's been their best player this season and B. Um, if you win the ball higher at the pitch you can protect your defence as well and as a little bonus you can service Callum Wilson who is been playing in his own postcode for most of the last two months so was probably happy to see Ryan Fraser and Callum and Maxima you know those players getting round him Bickle and Almiron getting round him because he needs that service he really does it's a really balanced answer and I think you're probably right still that clip of yeah. uh, Graham Jones looking like John Terry back in Roberto Di Matteo's <laughs> days shouting out <laughs> instructions and looking engaged while Steve Bruce kind of glared at him as this new fellow who's come in and is effectively doing his job for him. It is That kind of went a bit viral. And it is a slightly strange situation to have a manager with another guy, a less experienced guy coming in and, and being so much suddenly that the, the, the focus of the kind of managerial work, at least during the match. You've got a fun contrast in terms of Everton where Duncan Ferguson is still very, very loud and very, very animated uh, in regards to his charges. And this Everton performance was odd this wasn't uh Everton had good chances and got there but it was more or less a complete shutdown from Newcastle I do not know why Carlo Ancelotti decided to play Gilfie Sigurdsson as the deeper line pivot um when we know well that's a complete lie I do know why in theory he's probably gone Newcastle are going to sit deep so I can afford to play a extra playmaker who can't really run in a deep position because we can dissect him with loads of passes. But Newcastle decided to not sit deep and decided to go at them. So Gilfie Sigurdsson began to look like a passenger. Um, yeah, I think this is one of those losses for Everton that they're going to want to, you know, chalk off and say, on to the next job and let's not think about this for too long because if they dwell on it, oops. I guess just on the manager point as well, I mean, someone like Sir Alex Ferguson, we think of as very autocratic, but he often had, you know, think of Querosh and McLaren who did, you know, most of the coaching, I think, in certainly that, that latter era. So, you know, that there is a kind of paradigm there. Um, I just want to say as well, we were talking before uh, at the top about goal of the season, and I'm not suggesting it was a goal of the season contender, but I was saying I find 
The goals I'm most impressive are the ones I imagine are the hardest to score. And personally, I find heading really difficult. I think it requires exceptional coordination. And so that, I mean, any headed goal, I'm kind of a bit in awe of. But that Callum Wilson one, I mean, wow. Like, to to get that power from that angle and the movement beforehand, yeah, I just thought that was an absolutely brilliant striker's goal. And I I don't think there are that many... um, strikers you could have scored it I think it required uh, a lot of kind of a quite varied skill set um, mm. and he took the second one nicely as well very very good interview in match day afterwards where Callum Wilson basically explained that goal where he said first couple of corners Richarlison and whatnot were very very much looking at their zones and he thought well to hell with this I'm going to try and go near post and I think I think that's also how Newcastle won where everyone Everyone at Everton was going, we're going to play Steve Bruce's Newcastle team. They're not going to try much. So just do these mm. things and eventually we'll win. And then Newcastle sprung a surprise. They've been rope-a-doping for the previous four months or whatever. That, that <laughs> Callum Wilson goal is one of those that I, I I think computer games have ruined because if you can score a goal like that with one little click, it kind of almost <laughs> makes it, plays down how hard it is, the number of different mm. things you need to do well in terms of timing and, um, as you say, coordination. In a phenomenal header. He added a second goal in stoppage time to make it a 2-0 win and a uh, a massive boost to them. Uh, also a bit of a blow too, as we mentioned, the teams down in the bottom three. We're seeing other teams beginning to move away now. Of course, one of the other reasons for Newcastle's sudden resurgence might be the return of the likes of Alain Saint-Maximin from his COVID hell. So that's something to factor in there. Newcastle are going to be playing Crystal Palace in midweek. Palace, who had a 1-0 win over Wolves. On Saturday, that's only their second win in 10. Wolves, for their part, are now winless in eight matches. Palace goal scored by Eberiche Eze, or variants thereof. Jack Pierce asks, not saying he's there yet, but what criteria does Eberiche have to meet in order to be considered for best player outside the top six in coming seasons? What do you think? Is that a stretch? I think he just needs game time. Just needs more game time. He's got a delightful drop of the shoulder. like a re- That goal he got was again like Daniel said it was one of those goals that yeah you can kind of score in FIFA but to do that in real life he gets the extra half yard of space he has because he just subtly drops his shoulder and then he takes it wide and then he does the left footed shot he is a fantastic uh, isolation ball 1v1 winger and you can really see he's enjoying the less compact defences of the Premier League you can see when he gets on the ball every now and again um, I think Musa Kwanga made a joke where he's sort of like oh yeah single coverage this is fun. This is just like playing on a playground. Whereas obviously in the championship, it would be doubled up or tripled up on. Um, but yeah, I think if he just gets more, you know, it's just a case of just getting more reps and more consistency. And then he will be the player to carry Crystal Palace to whatever they want to go in the new age. Yeah, I think I honestly think the, the biggest danger to him not being the best player outside the top six is getting a move pretty quickly because... Palace have not got huge budgets. They've got an awful lot of players out of contract this summer. I'm not saying they sell him this summer, but um, he will move for forty, fifty million pounds when he does. And Palace shouldn't be scared of that. You know, they. I understood and understand why they held on to Wilfred Zaha for so long, but actually, if if that business model is good enough for Leicester, and it is then do that, you know, buy players from the championship, buy young players who you can develop and that they trust you to develop and then sell them and then they trust you to sell them because there must be players who think, well, hang on a minute, Wilfred Zaha moved there and he was brilliant and then he's still there so he never really got his move. I wonder if they'll do that with me and, um, you know, don't have fear Zaha did get his move though. Zaha went all over the shop. 
Well, no, he went to he went to Manchester United, and then he went to Cardiff, didn't he? From Man yes. United and then back, but it's yeah. the second time at Palace. He's been brilliant at Palace for Rhyme. Okay. four years, probably. Hmm. Okay. I mean, Eze, Eze has a beautiful running style. He's one of those players who just looks like he glides across the turf. And it's interesting the question about best player outside the the big six, I guess, in inverted commas, um, because a lot of fans of those teams, uh, I remember when he played very well against Tottenham, were kind of saying, "Well, why didn't we sign this guy?" You know, he's, he's already at that level, which you which you often see with those players uh, outside. I guess you know some might have said that about Zaha, although when he went to United, maybe not. But yeah, I mean, I think as a um, yeah, he, he looks like the complete package. Well, we mentioned briefly Villa's 1-0 win away at Saints, and we'll maybe touch on them in a second or two. And we'll also address some thoughts to the 2-2 draw between West Brom and Fulham. The other game from the weekend that we haven't referenced at all is the goalless draw at the Emirates between Arsenal and Man United. Colin Miller pointing out that since that loss... To Spurs, United have played other big six clubs in five games, haven't scored a goal, have conceded one goal, which was a penalty, and uh, it's a bit of an issue ongoing. Uh, Carl, you get 60 seconds for your thoughts on Man United, and then we'll move on. Poor Scott McTominay. I don't know what stomach problems he had, and I don't know if it was Buscapan or if it was Imodium that he had to take, but he looked to be in remarkable amounts of pain. This was a good nil-nil. It wasn't the sort of... No, no, that gives you an existential crisis in the same way the draw against Chelsea did or to a lesser degree the one against Manchester City did. Both those teams had their chances and they tried to score. I think Edison Cavani had two chances that, I mean, Cavani's never been clinical, but you'd think he'd score one of them. Um, and I think a lot of Ollie's game plan sort of got waylaid by Scott McTominay going off because we know he likes to use this Fred and Scott McTominay pivot in the bigger games. The problem with that is that you're essentially asking two players to do the job of one person. United need one proper number six defensive midfielder and they don't. Uh, and it causes all these problems because they also don't have the all-in-one centre-back. So they need to have, they've got two eh, centre-backs trying to do work. They've got two eh, defensive midfielders trying to do work. And now, since Martial's finishing has dropped off a Cliff, they've got two eh, strikers trying to do work. So Manchester United are eh, when you ask them, are they a title challengers? I agree with Carl that none of these are problem results or performances in isolation, but when you put them together to make the bigger picture, it is a bit of a problem. I mean, Arsenal were missing their highest chance creator in Bakayo Saka, their second highest chance creator in Kieran Tierney. They were missing Aubameyang. It kind of felt like after 20 minutes that Man United could have tried to step up a gear. And it, it, I, I think it just speaks of a kind of lack of belief in those games that stems from the 6-1. I think he just he's afraid of being punished. Well, they're still second in the table and still three points behind Man City. So should City slip up next weekend, then woof, we could see United, improbably enough, back on top. Before that, of course, they've got a midweek game. They're going to be hosting Saints, Arsenal will be at Wolves. And next up, we are going to be looking ahead and a little bit back at more things to do with the midweek fixtures. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Monday the 1st of February, transfer window closes today. We'll miss it. It's been quite quiet. But Carl, I did enjoy your piece on yestheathletic.com on what may prove a, a, a briefly flowering art form of the announcement video, the kind of transfer announcement video. We, we've not seen any great recent, I think, additions to the genre, have we? we lovely examples in your uh, article. Which one was your favourite, can I ask? Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the Come to Besiktas meme that was going mm. around in, in around about 2017. So I had a really good conversation with John Crozer, who worked at Rio Social, who basically helped redefine the art form with the Pogba Stormzy video, uh, which, depending on who you ask to, is still probably one of Paul Pogba's high points at Man United. Um, and yeah, I, I'm really impressed by the level of detail that goes into this transfer announcement, that what they do at AS Roma in terms of using what should be a viral moment in then making that a platform for missing children in numerous countries is a really, really interesting idea. Uh, I'm not expecting too much movement this window, on deadline day. I think I'm not really expecting anyone to move again in the summer. Uh, where's Daniel Sturridge? I feel as if you should have a football team by now. <laughs> Interesting point. I genuinely thought Carl was about to say, where's Daniel Story? I was like, has my WhatsApp call cut out? <laughs> Your legacy is the Patrick Bamford forerunner. Lives yeah. on. Big money move for Story. Carl, you're right, though, to highlight the uh, Stormzy Pogba video as a potential high watermark of, of the genre, certainly in terms of production uh, quality. But there were so many gold ones in there, and I urge you to go and have a look at uh, Carl's uh, article, which, which contains uh, lovely playing examples of the genre, which may already be on its last legs. I don't know. I mean, Kolarov's one. Even the Alexis Sanchez to Old, Old Trafford performs a magnificent job of just making the hairs stand up on the back of your neck. Um, <laughs> Very much in, so. I th- I think there's a body double in there, but I'm not entirely yeah, I'm sure. Sh- yeah, I've watched absolutely. that in slow motion many mm. times. I'm trying to see the gap between when it's someone in a wig and when it's Alexis Sanchez. But credit to the company that made it, I cannot spot any of the seams in there. Right. Um, I think one of the big players that is going to move this deadline day is probably going to be Maitland Niles. And isn't that okay? In- I mean, Maitland Niles can play. You, you- as a You're slightly hostage to fortune, Carl, by embarking on actual genuine transfer tour, <laughs> given that most people or a fair number of listeners will actually be enjoying this once the window's closed. So <laughs> I, I have well, to say, by we, all means. I, I don't see that as a very smart move for Arsenal. I mean, they, they're really short fullback and Tierney is clearly very injury prone. I, I get that they want him to have minutes, but the kind of season it's been that, you know, players who seem like they're not getting enough minutes suddenly are you know, really ind- indispensable and desperately needed. So g- given they're short in that area, I um, I think they'd be leaving themselves um, a bit exposed. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see to see if he does move. No, no, I'm, I'm really interested to see where Maitland-Niles end up. I'm interested to see if, if Daniel Sturridge ends up with a football club. I'm very interested to see where a bunch of under 23 players who need game time at the time where academic football can be quite precarious due to COVID restrictions, I'd be interested to see where they go on loan to various championship clubs. So you've seen quite a few players from United's under-23 teams being loaned out now. So I imagine there could be a flurry of movement by the time our good listeners have this podcast in their earballs. Woof. Well, that transfer deadline excitement is coming up on Monday evening. After that, we've got on-the-field drama to enjoy. A midweek round 
that features Spurs-Chelsea on Thursday as its headline match. Uh, Before that, Wednesday, we'll see Liverpool hosting Brighton. Burnley facing Man City, who've got a pretty awesome record against them. Fulham are up against Leicester City. Leeds host Everton. And Aston Villa take on West Ham in the David Cameron Confusion Classico (laughs) on Tuesday. Newcastle (laughs) up against Palace. Uh, Man United host Saints. Wolves face Arsenal and kicking the midweek round off. And for the very first time in the Premier League, it's Sheffield United West Bromwich Albion, a fixture that has gone down in infamy. A fixture which seems to have a sending off every single time it's played as another. Santos and Johnson now do collide and it was a hefty challenge and two substitutes brought on have just been sent off. Sheffield United down to six players. Yes, listener, it was the 16th of March 2002, hence the Lincoln Park. Blades against baggies in what turned out to be the Battle of Bramall Lane. Things got off to a bad start for Neil Warnock's Blades when keeper Simon Tracy was sent off. Then they were soon two goals down, and then there were three men down after George Santos of the home side was reunited with an old friend, the baggies Andy Johnson, who'd previously broken his eye socket. Say it was an accidental clash, but it'll be interesting to see what that first challenge is like. Santos gets red for one of the worst tackles ever made. Then fellow substitute Patrick Sufo also sees red in a subsequent brawl. So now two goals down and three men down. Over to Jeff Stelling. Of course, if two more were sent off, then the game would be abandoned. I'm sure that's not going to a Neil Warnock's mind. It almost certainly wasn't. And yet, two blades, Keith Girl and Michael Brown, soon made wild challenges but were somehow both spared reds. Afterwards, with West Bromwich Albion making it 3-0, a couple of blades did declare themselves unable to continue because of injury, and with all Neil Warnock substitutes used up, the match was unable to continue as well. The only English league game ever to be abandoned because one team had insufficient players to complete it. Wow. Happy memories for you fellows? Yeah, the, the, the thing I remember from it, and uh, it doesn't really appear on the highlights, is that uh, the referee, Eddie Walsenholm, clearly understands that there's got a problem because after about, well, before any of the two injuries, but after the sending's off, Keith Curl, Sheffield United Keith Curl, um, throws at least two punches in a fight and doesn't <laughs> get sent off for it. So you can, you can almost think the referee, please just calm down. And yeah, he doesn't get sent off. It's a, I mean, it's as bad as any of the sendings are. Maybe not the challenge. That's horrific, obviously. But yeah, that's why I remember. It's funny. Phil Jagielka actually played in that game. Mm. <laughs> oh, what a great defender. Yeah. That's not, that's not sarcastic. Like, he's, he's doing good. He beat Man United. Good. <laughs> the the other funny thing, I suppose, from that game, like the first sending off was Simon Tracy, who was the, the Sheffield United goalkeeper. And he famously was a goalkeeper who took an awfully long time to get he's used to the back the pa- pass keeper isn't he yeah yeah yeah, yeah. To, he got it took he took months to get used to the back pass rules so there's just just videos of him just kind of running down blind alleys and getting himself into trouble which it's it's like watching a little toddler try and work it out it's so good <laughs> baggy's boss gary megson said of the battle of bramall lane that he'd never witnessed anything as disgraceful in football there is no place for it in the game well uh, they come together again this time as i mentioned for the first time in the Premier League. They are the bottom two. Sheffield United, who were narrowly beaten this weekend by Man City. West Brom, who had a 2-2 draw with Fulham. How do you feel about the two teams' prospects, A, in this match, and B, in the more long-term terms? There's something about Sheffield United 
Well, I saw Sheffield United at Old Trafford in the win. And they've put in two very good performances against Manchester United now. And they've won once. They put in a reasonable performance against Manchester City. I think a loss was the fair result. But they, there are sparks of the old Sheffield United there. They were a team that got to where they were last season by winning games 1-0 and sort of single goal margins. And then what basically happened this season is those single goal margins have gone the other way and now they've had this horrible start. But you're beginning to see glimmers of something. I think Chris Wilder is a heck of a coach. So I think, yeah, I think Sheffield United are probably going to win this one. Yeah, I think despite West Brom having four more points, it, Sheffield United look far more likely to string a run together. Like You feel like it could click and if it does, then... Um, they could win a bunch of games. It's hard to imagine West Brom doing that. I mean, I think they might eke out a few, you know, between now and the end of the season. I just I don't really see them gathering the momentum that they need. I mean, they're nine points off it. So it's it's a big ask for them as the, well. The problem from Sheffield United's point of view is with Brighton's win, they are now 13 points away from safety. So it's not looking good. Perhaps if they could get a few players sent off retrospectively another fixtures just to go back indeed to that game in 2002 the the notion was that by getting the game suspended it would have to be replayed but that didn't happen West, West Brom were awarded the, the victory 3-0 and were going to be promoted to the Premier League for the very first time at the end of the season uh, Santos and Suva were both banned for six matches for their part in this and never played for the Blades again crikey that was then and uh now will be a Sheffield United West Brom all over again. We'll discuss that and all the midweek action, apart from Thursday night's game, in Thursday morning's Totally Football Show. Still to come in today's edition, we'll be touching on a couple of big stories from Brazil with our pal Jack Lang. Before that, though, let's get some odds from Lee Price of Paddy Power. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the podcast segment equivalent of signing Jesse Lingard. Still. Ace Lingard's played and scored at World Cup. Now, my game of the very busy weekend was the relegation six-pointer, so I have high hopes for Sheffield United versus West Brom. Seriously, no punchline here. You can't bet on both teams to lose, that'd be stupid. So we make Sheffield United odds-on to win this one at 17-20, despite the much-talked-about curse of the home stadium this season. Oh, and of course, just the curse of being Sheffield United. Wolves versus Arsenal kicks off at the same time, and definitely feels like a trap. Wolves last won the league before Christmas was cancelled, but they did win the return fixture at the Emirates. Arsenal have to be favourites though after a great run of form. It's just a shame that no one on TV could tell us how many points they took from the 18 available prior to the draw of Manchester United. They're 23 to 20 to win tomorrow night. Wolves are 12 to 5. Speaking of Man United, they host Southampton and are odds on to win which also doesn't fill me with confidence. While Newcastle and Crystal Palace take the prize for the weirdest betting numbers of the night, Newcastle are 7-4 to four to win, Palace are 8-5. to five. No idea what that means, me either. It means we give the Eagles about 2% more chance of winning the game. And just quickly, a mention for Leeds have been brilliant fun to argue about this season, but were genuinely very good on Sunday. It's 17-2, they come from behind to be Everton on Wednesday night, because it seems they like to do it the hard way. TTFM. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Listener, also out for your listening pleasure on this Monday, the 1st of February, is the Totally Football League show, which will be featuring myriad topics, no doubt amongst them. Brentford 7-2 win 
over Wickham on Saturday. Brentford, who are now on the longest unbeaten run in the country. 18 league games. Tuesday, a choice of listening for you. Uh, there's a totally Scottish football show. Celtic, I imagine, will be among the uh, hot topics there. There's the Offside Rule WSL edition. And also out on Tuesday, Totally Football Show European edition with Pochettino having problems at PSG and an actual riot at Marseille and all that stuff. And loads of other things too. Messi's contract, how that ended up in the papers probably. Anyway, join myself, Julien and Alvaro and James Horncastle and Raphael Honigstein for that on Tuesday. In the meantime, to wrap up today, speaking of international action, Saturday saw the much-heralded Copa Libertadores final at the Maracanã in Rio. Palmeiras against Santos, and it was a great advert for the game, the game being Saints Villa, which was on the other side at the same time. A nil-nil until the 98th minute before Palmeiras got the winner. But joining us now to talk about it is Jack Lang. Jack. James. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. All right, crap game, good finale, says Jack Lang of Copa Libertadores final. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it really wasn't much of a, a spectacle, particularly the first half. I thought the first half was was very turgid. Obviously, a big final is, there's going to be nerves and there's, you know, the fact that these two, uh, both for different reasons, kind of looking to, to make history. For, for Palmeiras, it was kind of a, shaking off the dust moment because they hadn't won it this century. Uh, Santos trying to win it for the, the fourth time in their history, which would have, would have made them the first Brazilian team to do that. And yeah, that those kind of, that, that tension I thought took over the first half, really a lot of, a lot of fouls, a lot of man-to-man marking and not a lot of space at all. A slight improvement in the second half. It kind of opened up a bit with a slight tactical tweaks on either side, but really only burst into life in the uh, in the injury time for some reason there were there were eight minutes of injury time for a start and that slight strange feeling to that number kind of gave way to a bit of action you had the Santos coach Kuka getting sent off and asking for VAR on the decision which was pretty funny and yeah that very that 99th minute winner from from Breno Lopes and then you have Palmeiras crawling around on the floor like pigs. I have to say, though, uh, Libertadores finals are often not the greatest. You make an interesting comparison, actually, with Mathrock. Yeah, yeah, that was quite pretentious, admittedly. But it, I, I think I was imagining someone who, who's never really watched South American football or Brazilian football. A, a couple of them had mes- messaged me on Twitter, actually, saying, oh, because this is on the BBC, this is actually the first South American game I'm going to watch. And then I I thought of those people at 43, 44 minutes when there had been barely any shots and just lots of fouls and diving and pushing. And you do wonder whether the spectacle in itself is, is going to really attract a lot of people. But the Libertadores especially has this kind of, it has its own charms that you kind of need to be attuned to, I think. So like you say, you don't really turn on this game expecting a, a five-goal thriller by any means you you kind of you're in it for the grittiness you're in it for the the bubbling tension the the little niggles that develop over a match and usually spring kind of burst into life when the final whistle goes into a shoving match and that you know it's not it's not classic aesthetic football always by any means but i think if you if you if your expectations are are adjusted before it starts there's 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 enough to get interested in it's just a shame that 
you know, even the talented individuals that both sides definitely have mm. didn't really didn't really spark into life. Right. Just to explain a little bit your math rock comparison, to use your words, there are hooks, but it's not the easiest to, to enjoy when you're not attuned. The time signatures are all weird. So that's cleared that one up. And, and just equally, to clarify the bit about crawling around on the floor like pigs, what was that about? Oh, well, uh, this is a, a Palmeiras member of the Palmeiras backroom staff after the final whistle kind of got down on all fours and wandered towards the goal. So it turns out I, I was wrong about this. I thought he was doing a an impression of a pig. So Palmeiras fans kind of uh, lovingly call themselves the pigs. And it's kind of a a derogatory nickname inverted and they kind of taken ownership of it. And so the, there's a very famous case previously when a, a, a Corinthians player called Viola scored against Palmeiras back in the day and then got down on the floor and started oinking like a pig into this microphone to you know to provoke them so i i interpreted it as a little a little nod to that but apparently it was uh, it's just a a religious thing in south america when you when you kind of make a religious pledge that you'll kind of get down on your hands and knees if if god does you a favor so apparently it was just that disappointingly all right well anyway um known as the pigs also known as verdao of course, and in other big Verdão news, uh, this weekend in Brazil, Chapecoense, uh, who had a huge match. Chapecoense, of course, uh, the club that was almost wiped out in 2016 when they almost their entire team was killed in that terrible air crash in Colombia when they were on their way to play the first leg of the Copa Sudamericana final. Uh, the plane hadn't been carrying enough fuel. It turned out the investigation uh, discovered that the, the air company had kind of consistently done this, sent the planes up without adequately equipping them with fuel. And uh, and this time they, they didn't get away with it. And, and the, as I say, it wiped out almost uh, the entire Chapaguense squad. Three players survived. They were relegated. They were able to pull together players from various places, their youth team, etc. But uh, they were relegated three years on. But this weekend they had the chance to seal the second division title with the last kick of the last game of the season. They were playing Confianza. They needed one more goal to take first place on goal difference. 98th minute, they're awarded a penalty and Anselmo Ramon panenkas it. Partiu Anselmo Ramon! Goal! The Jack, what a feel-good story this is. Yes, definitely. I mean, it, it's not just the, you know, the the historical context with the plane crash. This is just for the size of the club. I think this is their first title beyond beyond like state level. They were obviously awarded the Sulamericana after that tragedy, but the, you know, in terms of on the pitch, this is their first uh, real title. Obviously, there was a reconstruction period after the after the tragedy. It, it took a while for them to get to grips with that, and uh, you know, financial problems as well. The, the realities of Brazilian football are such that it, it's not easy to to build a squad on the fly. And so, it wasn't really much of a surprise when they went down to Serie B. And Serie B is, can be quite a tough division to get out of. Uh, so, yeah, the fact they've done it. Pretty quickly is is really heartening, and especially to see Alan Huschel, who is who is one of three survivors of the crash, lifting the trophy. That's you know I think that's an image that will will remain in the annals of Brazilian football for a long time. Wow, Jack Lang for you there, and uh, what what a nice what a nice way to finish up going to see back 
in the Brazilian top division, which is a complicated business, to be fair. Now, uh, that takes us to the end of today's Totally Football show. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, listen. I know I have, in the company of Charlie and Carl and, and Daniel. Anything you want to leave us with in terms of one other conclusion or one other thing you're excited about, about the midweek coming up? The season-long scientific experiment of, of what is the tightest offside you can get. It was mm. nice to see a new challenger this week. I think that's as close as we've ever got, but you know, science and technology is, is improving all the time, so we will see a tighter gap. We did rather gloss over Saints and their misfortune in that defeat at home to Villa, but uh, yeah, more to come from them, no doubt. Maybe if we ignore VAR, it'll go away. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I am I am really interested to see how Southampton continue. Um, I think Raf Asenhall is a genuinely inventive coach, but that squad is looking particularly threadbare now. So. Mm. Well, Man United coming up midweek, and those games are always full of goals, so I imagine we'll be talking a lot about them come Thursday's uh, podcast. For now, many thanks to you all. Many thanks to you, listener, for being with us, and to producer Charlie for putting this together overnight. And from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Hi. I'm James McNicholas, and I'm here to tell you about the latest series of Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. If I did anything wrong, why did they pay me off? You see, Sam Allardyce seemingly can't quit English football, and English football can't quit him. But why? Why does football keep coming back to Sam Allardyce? To answer those questions and many more, you'll hear from former Hull City manager Phil Brown. He didn't mind having the crack, he didn't mind having the banter, but he would, he would prove his way was the right way. Dundee United manager Mickey Mellon. I seen for some holidays, really. And of course, Father Joe Young, owner of Limerick FC, where the Big Sam story began. Now I said, Sam, this is the ultimate goal. Now I'll show you what we have. <laughs> and I brought him up and he said, Jesus, Father Joe, are you serious? I said, look, nothing is impossible to those who believe. You'll learn about his time in America at the Tampa Bay Rowdies, the way he revolutionised English football, and of course, the England debacle. You can hear it all now and ad-free via the Athletic app. Just search for Beyond the Headline now. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.